You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Sunday of Advent, the text that inspired my talk today is 1 John chapter 4. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. I love that text. And um, if, I, if I posted that on Facebook and people didn't know it came from the Bible, I'm sure some of my evangelical friends and family would re- respond, liberal new age hogwash (laughs) everyone who loves is born of god and knows god hogwash you can't be born of god unless you believe in jesus's virgin birth and his atoning death on the cross and bodily resurrection you can't be born of god unless you've been water baptized for the remission of sins you can't be born of god unless you believe in the trinity and jesus's full divinity you can't be born of god unless you can confess the church creeds and affirm the infallibility of the bible It's amazing to me that a religion that says God is love has such a hard time equating faith with love and seeing love as the ultimate expression of faith and spiritual vitality. It's amazing to me that many Christians never notice that the only thing required to be Jesus's disciple in Jesus's day was that you follow his teachings and love as he loved especially with regards to the so-called least of these, right? The downtrodden, the poor, the hungry. That, that was it. I mean, that was discipleship in Jesus's day. Um, not that anybody was ever really good at it. <laughs> I'm reminded of Frederick Nietzsche's uh, famous words, there was only ever one Christian and he died on a cross, meaning the rest of us are aspiring Christians. But the point is, theological orthodoxy, Theological orthodoxy had nothing to do with discipleship in Jesus's day. Nowhere do you find uh, Jesus teaching his disciples about his virgin birth or the nature of his divinity or that of the Trinity. Nowhere do you find him teaching about how his future death will be an atoning sacrifice and a propitiation for our sins or a ransom payment for Satan uh, to Satan on our behalf. Nowhere does he teach the doctrine of biblical inerrancy. All that was required to be his disciple was that you follow his teachings on love and justice, that that you share in his sufferings and lay down your life for others as he did. Jesus said in John 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus said. He didn't say, if you love me, you'll have the correct Christology. (laughs) No, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments or my teachings. And what are his teachings? but to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the fulfillment of the entire law and the prophets, he said. And I wanted to begin my talk this way today because many of us are told, you know, we're not real Christians anymore because we're not theologically orthodox. We don't confess the Nicene Creed or believe what most of the church believes. And I want you to feel assured, but for those of you who want to feel assured, Uh, Some of you don't want to label label yourself a Christian anymore, and that's fine too. But for those of you who do want to call yourself a Christian, I want you you to feel assured that that if you believe God is love uh, and or endeavor to follow the teachings of Christ, then you are a real Christian. Or in, in Nietzsche's estimation, 
you are an aspiring Christian. There was only, there was only ever one Christian and he died on a cross. And the rest of us are just his admirers and doing our best to imitate him. I wanted to share that point with you today in, in my Advent talk on love because love is really what defines Christianity. And I, I want to go deeper than that this morning and look closer at this idea that love is God and God is love. I want to look closer at this blurring together of love and faith and the deliberate obscuring in the scriptures of one's relationship with God and one's relationship with each other. Um, the inseparability of these concepts has intrigued um, many of the greatest thinkers in Christian history. Um, or I'm talking about people like Augustine, Kierkegaard, Tolstoy, and others. Um, Augustine, that great church father and theologian from the fourth century, once asked perhaps the most important question any person of faith could ever ask themselves. What do I love when I love God? What do I love when I love God? It's not an easy question to answer. I think Augustine was wondering, how do you love a being you've never seen or met or conversed with? Usually when we talk about loving something or someone, we're talking about something we can see, touch, hear, smell, taste. How do you love someone or something that is beyond all that? Can you, can you actually love such a thing, such a person? I, I think the first Christians wrestled with this question too. What do I love when I love God? And I think our text today in 1 John holds a great answer. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. In other words, loving others is the Christian way of seeing God. Loving others is the Christian way of seeing God, and loving others is the Christian way of loving God. God cannot be loved directly. You've heard me say this before, maybe. It's an important point. God cannot really be loved directly, according to the Christian tradition. God can only be loved indirectly as we love others. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew 25 when he says that he was, in fact, the hungry person we fed. He was, in fact, the thirsty person we gave water to, the naked person we clothed, etc. That was him. That was God. <laughs> Loving others is not just the Christian way of loving God, but loving others is the Christian way of seeing God, touching God, for God lives in us, First John says. This is an amazing claim and, and a traditionally Christian one. This isn't New Age mysticism, although it certainly finds echoes within New Age mysticism and other religions. Truth has a way of doing that, you know. It pops up everywhere because it's true and it's intuitive. There's actually a burgeoning school of thought today within Christianity that takes its cues from texts like ours today. It's called Christian materialism. Christian materialism. I would consider myself at this point in my journey a Christian materialist, and I'm sure some of you have heard materialist themes in, in many of my talks. It's this idea that everything divine and transcendent is found right here, right now, in material reality in matter, space, and time. There is no two-world split for me between the physical and the spiritual, the material and the immaterial, the natural and the supernatural, heaven and earth, flesh and spirit, however you want to look at it. Um, there is no two-world split for me anymore. And this, this isn't a way of disenchanting the world or stripping the magic out of the world, but a way of saying that the world is already enchanted and magical as it is 
in many ways. We don't need to look beyond material reality for these things. Consider that we don't really know what consciousness is. We don't even know what, what bodies really are. I mean, think about that. We don't even know what bodies really are. The, the more we explore these things and material, material reality, the more mystery we find and the more enchanted the world seemingly becomes. So this is how I answer Augustine's question, what do I love when I love God? Loving God, for me, is a way of loving this world and each other and to not distinguish between the two. We don't distinguish between God and our neighbor in the Christian tradition. This way of thinking takes its cues from many places in our scriptures, certainly in 1 John, but also from the Gospels, as I've already pointed out in Matthew 25. But it also comes from the nativity story, right? The Christmas story. And, and this idea that the incarnation, uh, th that th the idea of the incarnation, where we find this idea that the word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us, that, that, the, that the word of God became hungry and thirsty and worked with his hands and knew friendship and love and experienced sorrow and death, that God experienced sorrow and death. In this way, I think the scriptures invite us to dig deeper into what we mean when we speak of God, when we invoke the name of God. I, I think the scriptures are um, inspiring us to think in more, more in terrestrial and material terms about God. I think our scriptures encourage us to think of loving God as loving love itself. Uh, for God is love, right? To love God is to love love itself, which for me means to love kindness to love compassion and justice and liberation and peacemaking and forgiveness. Those who love these things love God, whether they know it or not. The great Danish philosopher from the 19th century, Soren Kierkegaard once said, the name of God is the name of a deed. I love that. The name of God is the name of a deed, a deed like love, of course. Therefore, those who love God love love itself, which means we love whatever enhances human well-being and human flourishing. We, we love anything that brings healing and hope and, and life into the world and into the lives of others. This is what it means to love God, which means to me that on, on the deepest level, when we speak of God, we're not really speaking of a being on high so much, but an event, an experience harbored deep within our humanity, the most meaningful and beautiful aspects and experiences endemic to living and being human. God is the name we give these ineffable and wonderful aspects uh, and experiences of, of being human and being alive. So when we say that God is love, we're saying that God is the depth dimension to life itself. To love God is to love whatever gives life its ultimacy, its depth, its meaning, and its beauty. To love these things is to love God. This is how I answer Augustine's question, what do I love when I love God? This is what I think he was getting at so many centuries ago. It's, it's to love something more than just a being on high, but it's to love being itself. It's to love life itself. Leo Tolstoy wrote at the end of War and Peace, God is life and to love life is to love God. God is life and to love life is to love God. You don't get more Christian than that, in my opinion. Tolstoy was a, was, was a great Christian, a radical Christian. But this idea transcends just Christianity. I would argue any faith 
any philosophy, any religion, any, any form of spirituality that's worth itself ultimately affirms this, God is life and to love life is to love God. So, so this is what I, what I love when I love God. This is the meaning uh, of the nativity and the incarnation for me, that this idea that God became flesh and dwelt among us. And I've come to believe that regardless of our various conceptions of God's ontology, meaning the way that we think about the nature of God's existence and beinghood, whether we think he or she is an actual being somewhere on high, a personality, or an energy force that permeates all of reality, or, or just a word we use to describe the depth dimension of life, regardless of the, of the various ways we define God's beinghood, I've come to believe that many times, not always, but many times, we all really are talking about the same thing, even if we don't know it. When I was an evangelical, I was really into worship music and would get lost in the experience of, you know, having my hands raised high and my eyes closed and singing my heart out to God. And I would garner such a feeling of peace and joy from those experiences that I believed were the presence of God. I would feel in those moments such immense love from God. You know, looking back on it now, I think I was simply tapping into this sense of being connected to something bigger than myself, much bigger than myself. And this sense of being connected to the essence of life itself, being connected to, to love itself. What I'm saying is that we can still connect to that now. Even if we don't engage in, you know, quote, worship or subscribe to that understanding of God anymore, we can still find ways of connecting to love, which is what I think it has always really meant to connect to God. So those are my thoughts on love today, this fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Um, those are my thoughts on the love of God and what we mean when we love God. And I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts at this time. Um, does anybody have any, any comments or questions? Hey, Aaron, I just wanted to comment on the last thing you were talking about with the connection when you were singing. Um, I think that was probably a pretty universal feeling. And there was an easy way to know how to connect with, you know, something bigger than yourself. Um, but I think one of the biggest hurdles, maybe, is trying to find that connection without that yeah you mean without, um, worship, without that worship music yeah kind of experience yeah 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 it's, it's a really interesting transition from you know trying to find other ways to connect with god or connect with others even um outside of that particular environment because i know yeah. that is a huge comfort thing especially with my evangelical friends now i mean that is that is that is church for them they could care less about anything else isn't that interesting yeah yeah i i think you're right may i and i've looked at studies before that say most people choose 
within that tradition, the evangelical tradition, most people choose what church they're going to go to based around the worship music, more, more so than the pastor, more so than the sermon. The sermon is not really the center of the service for them. It's, it's the music. It's the feelings of being enraptured, you know, in, in, that, in that meditative moment, right, where you connect with, you know, this, this feeling of transcendence, right? And uh, in a sense, you get high, right? And, there's, and I'm not denigrating that right now. I'm, I'm saying that that's, that's kind of the experience. And um, I, I think that I have found personally, I can only speak for myself, that I've been able to find that feeling of being connected to the divine, the sacred, the transcendent by simply like just honestly connecting with my environment in various ways and, and meditating on kind of like the awe and the, and the majesty and the wonder of, of creation. And also when I think of Frankly, um, you know, when I'm when I'm moved by my connection to others and my sense of love for others, I connect with those feelings too. And you know, I think there's so many different practices that we can engage in, even now as quote unquote progressive post-evangelicals, um, that can connect us to that feeling of being part of something much bigger than ourselves. And and it doesn't have to be worship music, and you know that that kind of you know that that theological because it comes with a lot of theology right this idea that god is this literal being on high that wants to be fawned over or you know wants wants us to praise him to adore him with words and expressions of love like that i, I think there's there's a deeper kind of experience to be had in what i'm talking about but that's that's where i'm at um and i appreciate you bringing that up because i i i think that's important um how do how do you how, how do you others feel about that? Um, do you feel like you can connect with the divine, the sacred, the transcendent? Do you feel like you're able to connect with that sense of being part of something bigger than yourself still, where you're at in your spiritual journey in this, quote, deconstructed post-evangelical, you know, place? Um, you can always post in the chat column, too. It's like Jason's doing that. Yes, Jen, I've seen that video. <laughs> it's, re it's really funny. Yeah, Ashley typed that. Yeah. Um, I don't need the music to connect, um, but I definitely need the space. So no, I do not feel connected like to God or anything right now. And mm. it's just gotten, gotten worse, you know? Um, I tried going to... This really beautiful Catholic church that's close to us, and they were having um, in-person outdoor services. They are not; they aren't; they aren't anymore. But I went to like one service, and I was like, "This would be better if it were indoors, but we're in a tent, and it's not the same yeah. at all." <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah. I really like going to Central and sitting in a sanctuary and listening to Max play. Yeah. yeah. Especially the songs you choose, Max, because the lyrics are so sobering and so sacred at the same time. So that makes me feel connected to God in a more somber way than I think Hillsong would, you know? Yeah, I think, Max, I'd let you respond to that. I just wanted to say that I think what we still do is worshipful. I, I still think that it is a kind of worship but not maybe like the kind of worship we used to practice where it's, you know, directed at a particular being. It's more about 
you know, us embracing kind of these, these ideas of love and life and, and affirming kind of the deeper aspects of our humanity and our experience of each other and being together and connecting with something that maybe defies words. And I, I think that's really beautiful. And I, I think that's ultimately what any, what any worship really is helping us do, whether we know it or not, in my opinion. But um, thank you for those words. And, and Jen, just to also respond um, to you, I, I think we, I, th I think this last year is reminding me and, and others like yourself that, um, you know, having liturgical spaces, having actual sacred spaces that we go into together, physical structures, be it, be it a, an actual like practice we engage in or a physical place that we go to together um, that is set aside as sacred, that that's actually important. I, I, I think that's, that, that, that's reminding me of that or showing that to me. Anyway, other, other thoughts today? Hey, Aaron. Um, so what's, what's interesting for me is that this time of year was always really special to me because my mom was a music minister at the Catholic Church. And so every, um, you know, every Christmas, it would be this big thing. We'd go to like midnight mass, you know, the night before, uh, well, on Christmas Eve. And it was always that funny thing because it was a, everybody was always wondering when midnight mass was. They didn't know if it was at 11. They didn't know if it was at midnight. It was, it was always this funny confusion around it anyway. Um, but it was a really special time for me because, you know, mom would lead the choir. She'd be playing the organ. You know, she'd be directing, you know, everybody. And it really had this um, really beautiful, um, uh, um, you know, spiritual vibe, you know, to it. My brother Matt would come and play a saxophone. My dad would bring, you know, some, uh, uh, some cymbals and he would play the like cymbals for like crashes and all this kind of stuff. And like, you know, it was this, um, it was about as perfect of like, uh, you know, a Christmas Eve sort of thing, you know, as you can get. And, um, and like you said, like some people that I didn't see year round would all of a sudden show up to church <laughs> for that. Yeah. <clears throat> and, um, you know, ever since she had passed away and since I had moved on and my faith has changed and all this kind of stuff, um, I, I'm not, I, I do find myself longing, you know, for that, especially around this time, because she did pass away around this time as well. Um, but, and I'm not quite sure if, you know, you'll ever get back that true feeling, you know what I mean? Like be able to like get that specific kind of like what you were talking about, May, like I, I do really miss that specific feeling in the same way that, you know, um, I know in this, we can debate whether nostalgia is actually a useful feeling or not, you know what I mean? Or, uh, but you know, there are a lot of different experiences that I think back on my, especially in my childhood, you know, now that my mom's passed away and my dad has Alzheimer's and different things, it's kind of like, I can't go back there. I can't go back to that waking up Christmas morning, you know, warm fire, you know, breakfast is ready, you know, curling up in a blanket, you know, I mean, so many of those things that um, I associate with my family or with God. But what I have found is that especially with how difficult this year has been, um, you know, seeing so much of my life stripped away, whether it's my belongings or my home or different things, um, I find that being at home, like with my wife or being with, you know, our cats or even just this time, I was, I was actually feeling it this morning a little bit where like I, I signed on and I was thinking to myself, I'm like, well, I'm not going to be here in person with everybody. And so is this going to make me more sad to be part of this church service this morning? Cause it's just going to remind me of how much I miss being with everybody. But um, I actually started to feel a little bit of comfort feeling like, you know, I'm being grateful to share this time, whatever little time I have with everybody, whether it's just through this 
or, you know, the, you know, since both of my cats are sick, I don't know how much time I have left with them, but just um, really being present with them and, and, and focusing on what I am grateful for, for what I have. Um, and being in that moment has kind of been the closest thing I could get, especially around this time, you know, to that same sort of feeling, like you said, like, like experiencing that love and sharing that love. So I, I know some of that might seem, I, if I was to see this recording of myself, maybe about a year ago, like, oh, that's so cliche, but I really feel it now. <laughs> and I really yeah, I believe it that. now. So um, yeah. anyway, just what I want to share. That was beautiful, Ben. Thank you for sharing that. And I just wanted to highlight what you said, that experience of gratitude of, of you know, for the simple things in your life, your cats, the, 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 you know, Aaron and, and the, the things that are closest to you, that feeling of gratitude is that experience of love and that, that sense of being connected to something beyond yourself. And that's deeply meaningful. I, I think that's beautiful. That, that experience Absolutely. of gratitude, gratefulness, gratefulness. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Renee Brown talks about how gratefulness unlocks um, kind of that depth dimension to life. And it's, it's about being grateful, honestly, for quote unquote, the little things, because the little things really are the big things, right? Um, yeah, Ben, thank you. That's powerful. Um, and then, yeah, Colin, I did want to respond to what you said in the, in the chat column, because you raised a really good point about Tolstoy being an ascetic, you know, being someone and, and being part of a, um, I think a tradition of Christians that, you know, went into a more of a monastic existence and denied so much of life, right? You took vows of poverty, you know, how can asceticism and that kind of thing be a, a way of affirming life? And I, to be honest, I don't know uh, how, how that exactly works for them. I don't, I don't know because I don't have the, that kind of tradition, but I, I can imagine that from Tolstoy's perspective, a way of, you know, disconnecting from um, wealth and the pursuit of wealth and, and disconnecting from what he would probably consider um, distractions and living a more simple existence was a way of affirming life in, in its depths and in a sense clearing out like the distractions so that he can really live deeply uh, as he believed God you know would want him to that's, that's how I think he would probably or an, a monk would probably articulate it that form of self-denial is not a way of hating life or denying life but a way of actually affirming life by clearing away what they would consider distractions I, I think that's how they would put it but it's a good question, though. Yeah, I and that might might have come from Leah or Jude or Sarah, not Colin. <laughs> it just says Sarah, Leah, Jude, Colin. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. Other thoughts, reflections, reflections today. Uh, Nathan, I saw what you said. I just wanted to highlight what you said as well. Just that music has become a way of you connecting um, to the sacred, the divine again, and it it always has been for me too. I just want to say, I when I go for runs or you know, get exercise, I'll listen to music and I'll have to take breaks because uh, I'll find myself tearing up, just feeling really grateful and thankful and connected to something beyond myself that I would say is the God dimension. And, and music gets me there still. I've always been musical. I played the drums my whole life, church bands and that kind of thing. But anyway, I just wanted to say that's wonderful. And that's, and I want to encourage all of us to think about different ways we can we, we can experience that. It, that's, that's, it's enriching. That's, it's so enriching to find things that can infuse, you know, moments with, with that kind of depth. Anyway, somebody else, anybody. Can I, can I make a comment? Yeah, please. 
I always get anxious when I hear sermons about how much we need to love God. And then, and then there's this big theological way of, sorry, sermons on how we need to love our neighbors. And there's a huge theological weight to that. And there's no attention being paid to how we love people who are abusive to us. Yeah. Because I, I feel like I have to go back into that abusive situation in order to be like Christ and love them when psychology and reality tells me that it's just going to hurt me. Mm. Uh, so I don't know. I just wanted to point that out because I, um, it's just something I thought about. Yeah. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'd be curious to hear your or anybody else's wisdom on how you navigate those waters, especially, um, you know, who from being from a, a place of trauma, right? Um, how do we do that? Or do we do that? Um, anybody want to respond to that? I think that coming from a place, a conversation about love, Ashley, you know, to actually live into love with regards to what you're talking about, I think means to love and take care of yourself too, right? Um, it, 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 can't, it can't mean um, you, you know, allowing yourself to be harmed in, in those ways, uh, that that's not the path of love. That's not the path of love at all. Uh, you know, you, you loving the abuser such that it allows them to continue to harm you. That's not love. It's not even love for them. You know, that, that kind of complicit, you know, that kind of codependent uh, way of being, I guess I, I should say, you know, allowing them to continue to go on harming you is not loving to them either, actually. You know, of course, they wouldn't see it that way. <laughs> but um, the path of love is, is to disconnect sometimes from those people, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that has to be acknowledged. I, I think sometimes we have a very narrow understanding of love as being whatever makes the other person feel good whatever empowers the other person to do what they want to do. That's not the path of love. The, the path of love is healing and, and, and that which enhances, you've heard me say it so many times, that which enhances human well-being and human flourishing. They're flourishing and you're flourishing, right? Um, it's not love to allow them to continue to behave in hateful ways. We need to disconnect from such people and tell them that even. Um, yeah. And we can do that in love and say, I love you. Uh, but I can't be with you. I can't be around you. I can't allow you to continue to do this to me because I love myself as well. <laughs> and, you know, they're not going to see it that way. I'm not pretending that's going to redeem anything for them, but, you know, you, I don't need to say more. You get it. Yeah. It'd be helpful to deconstruct it more because I feel like a lot of us might struggle with that because it's preached from the pulpit. You yeah. love someone, you forgive them no matter what. Yeah. Whether it's a parent or in your marriage or your supervisor, like yeah, that's a right. really toxic theology. So thanks. Yeah. for yeah. yeah, Ashley. And I think that theology always comes from a place of theological authoritarianism and, and, and people that are deeply unhealthy themselves and that are doing it because they have an ulterior motive. I've heard those sermons before, and I've heard it from pastors that I know personally that are narcissistic and bullies. And they do it because they want to, they're, they're literally talking to five or six people in their own congregation that have called them out on their shit. And they're literally preaching to those five or six people saying, you, you need to get in line because I'm the pastor and you need to forgive me. Yeah, maybe I was wrong. You need to forgive me and get over it and keep, keep coming to my church and keep listening to me. 
that is that is usually where that comes from. There's an ulterior motive. You know, I, that's that's a deeper subtext. Sorry, go ahead. Oh no, sorry. I was just gonna say I'm struck and reminded of like the late Glenn Stassen and um, David Gushy's take on like a third way um, version of love, right? And I think um, Ron Sider, Walter Wink, a couple other theologians, kind of. Um, approaches as saying and they take they take like the beatitudes as saying like you've heard it said you know um and start to overturn um sort of these long-standing traditions and commandments of how we love right so it's like these ways of you know turning the other cheek and which is obviously the most famous of these examples of saying wait a second if someone hits me i'm just supposed to turn the other cheek to be hit again like which i'm always am reminded of when when you bring up the really good question of of what you're doing now um but they kind of take turn it on its head and say like it is not it wouldn't be loving just to take another hit right and and not have any corrective measures in that relationship but um but when you drill down on it there are actually really subversive ways to love people and in the way of saying like if you if you don't love someone you know, in the concept that we're thinking of, that's, you know, that can be a protection mechanism. And I think there's good um, boundaries in that, but sort of framing the way that there's also a way to still hold space for someone, to still love someone that means deeply, you know, to you, but to not allow that kind of behavior to happen anymore. And in so doing, you are showing the deepest level of love by saying like, I am not, I'm not letting you have this easy, repetition of these damaging behaviors that damage both me and you. I'm actually stopping this um, and, and because of my love and the possibility that you could have redemption. So obviously it's very nuanced and it's, it's, I, I think you ask a really great question, Ashley. And I think it's, um, I think there's, there's work to be done there, but I, the, the classic, the classic um, Christian thought of just forgiveness at all cost etc is problematic it's very problematic um and as aaron noted too it's like is often exploited by those who know how to exploit it um so i think there's there's a room to re-embrace a concept of love that sets boundaries and is able to love and shape right um others not out of a a place of hatred right for the hurt cause but a place of saying I love you, so I am going to, you know, um, choose a subversive way, perhaps, um, to carry the, the bag the extra mile, right? To cause you to recognize the own shame in your actions. That's my favorite one of Glenn Stassen of the, of the hitting of the cheek, right? So it's like, you know, when you dig down to the context around that time, it's really by turning your other cheek, you're causing the, you know, a, the striker to use the back of their hand which was a shameful thing, right? Or to use their left hand, which was also a dirty, shameful thing in that culture. So it wasn't just like for like asking someone to hit you again. It's making them realize that in their actions, they are shaming themselves by hurting you. Um, and yeah, I mean, those, there are books written about that. So I'll stop there. <laughs> but just, just noting that, that that's where I go in my head of saying, how do we, how do we hold on to this thing that's so central and in a in a healthier way. Good stuff. Thanks, Max. 
Other thoughts I, today? I would add in if I can. If I oh, absolutely. Can. Thanks. Yep. Yeah, Tina, go ahead. Um, just the idea, I think sometimes we talk about relationships with one person as though everything in our life is in and in that relationship is just that one person. And really like our relationships with, you know, like my relationship with Maylin may impact my relationship with you, Aaron, or with Nathan, or, you know, because how, how it, because it impacts you and that impacts how you interact with others. I think that's another thing to yes. think about with abusers is, you know, like I know the people in my life that have, have been hurtful to me, have in turn made me less of a loving person to others. Um, yeah, good point. Thank you for that. That's a really good point. Other thoughts today? Love is complicated <laughs> and it's controversial. That word is so loaded, <laughs> you know, is what I mean, I guess. It shouldn't be this, this difficult. And I, I love that we're able to talk about it and parse it as, as we are. Um, and to talk about the practicalities of it too. Such an important conversation to have, especially at this time of year, even though, you know, many of us are not going home to see family, we'll still Zoom with family. <laughs> we still experience those familiar connections at this time of year. And um, I certainly struggle with my relationship with my father, and I'm not sure how to, how to navigate those waters because he's a deeply hurtful and abusive, but also mentally ill person. So I'm just letting you know that, you know, this, I wish I had, even for myself, um, an answer about how to navigate that relationship. And I don't. I have a really quick tip um, that I found yeah. useful on my family Thanksgiving Zoom. That yeah. um, Zoom, it's actually, <laughs> if you have someone in your family who you don't necessarily even want to look at, with Zoom is great because you can just take a post-it and put it right on your screen and cover up their little box. Yeah. <laughs> Real during Thanksgiving. So wait, let I me love it. <laughs> so the, her father gave us strict uh, PDA, non PDA rules and we're not, oh. about but on the zoom call, he can't, he can't do anything. Right. So as we're doing this, his face gets like really angry. And so we just were like, how do we yeah. walk that out? Just put a, put a, you know, post it right on the screen. Don't even Beautiful. have to look <laughs> I don't think I'm ever going to forget that. That is, <laughs> that is awesome. And, and it's so practical. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's a way that you can make that, that work. <laughs> and it's amazing. You make it work. Let me put it like that. It's amazing. You make that work guys, girls. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Oh my God. How do we, how Herman, do we get, Herman, how did we get that. What's that, Nathan? Sorry. I, I see that Herman. I just want to know who he's covering up. <laughs> oh, don't, don't, don't say, don't say. Yeah. Um, oh my God. I don't even know. I don't even know how to deal with the Lakin. Lakin posted something in the chat column that I think is worth looking at for those of you. Uh, and Whitney posted yeah, great comments, everybody. Rodney. Yeah. Well, thanks for being here, everybody, and, and engaging. Stephen, 
um, yeah. Any uh, any other closing thoughts remarks before we conclude for for the day? I feel like there was something else I wanted to mention, but now I can't remember what it is. I talk enough as it. I talk enough, right? So, uh, I guess we're done. <laughs> Merry Christmas to everybody! Thanks for being here, and um, we have that that Christmas Eve service uh, on Thursday night. What that is Christmas Eve, right? Thursday night. Um, yeah. So half an hour long, probably. Candlelight. Bring a candle. I think we want to encourage people to bring a little little candle to hold or set up behind you, maybe on a shelf or something. Kiddos uh, and welcome. Say that, Max. I said in kiddos and everyone welcome. It's up there. Yes. Yes. Obviously. All righty. Well, we are formally dismissed, I think, with that, because it's 1130. But, um, thanks. Thanks for being here, everybody. Um, much love to all of you. Uh, be safe out there. Thanks, bye, Aaron. Bye-bye, Randy. Mm -hmm.